0: Live from Liverpool, The Dark Paranormal, Season 13. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Dark Paranormal, Episode 8, Season 13. I can't believe that next week we're already. ...at the penultimate episode of this season. But I am really pleased to announce... ...that season 14 looks like being one of our best yet. We have each and every slot already filled for season 14. However, as always... ...if you have a true paranormal experience... ...don't let that stop you from sending it in. Each and every season we've done so far... ...we've always replaced at least one experience... For something that's arrived on our doorstep, something that just seems to fit. And that's certainly the case for when we reach our season finale. But more about that on next week's penultimate episode. Because in today's episode, we find ourselves asking the question, does living on old sacred land have the power to open up some dormant psychic abilities within the individuals who reside there? But also, is there a price to be paid for that? Some familial mark, a familial curse? We also find ourselves asking the question, what good is foresight if it's so sporadic and vague that you're often unable to help the individuals involved? However, before we take a look at today's fascinating true paranormal experience, We of course need to thank our wonderful team over at Patreon. By joining our team over at Patreon, not only will you receive these episodes both ad-free and before everyone else, you can also gain exclusive access to the Patreon-only podcast Dark Bites. Dark Bites is a Patreon-only podcast which runs every single week of the year, even on the downtime between seasons meaning you never miss your paranormal fix. And for those of you who like to binge listen, there's over 60 hours worth of Patreon-only podcasts for you to go and listen to. We've built our wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over at Patreon, and we'd love to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash Paranormal. Just like the following wonderful new team members have Ruben Hernandez, Christina Baker, Tavia Dillon, Desiree M, Sophia Engzel, Rita Martinez, Monica, Amy Castaneda, Laura Monroe, Gavin Burchell, Billy Book, Monique Smith, Rebecca Green, Mandy Ellis Alyssa Briggs, Jade Heath, Regina 88, Kitty Schertze, Jennifer Martin, Holly M.M., Jamie Carrigan, Liam Bridgehouse, Michelle Taylor, Steve Rausch, Harriet Amos, Kareen Weber, Claire Priest, I. Jimenez7, Sabumafu, Charlie Stevenson, Amy Weisler, and Cheyenne. A huge thank you for all the support, guys. It truly means the world, and I hope you enjoy all the early ad free releases debuts and season finales, and of course, those extra Patreon Dark Bites episodes. And so, if you'd like to join our wonderful community over on Patreon, simply head over to patreon.com forward slash Paranormal. But right now, it's time to lower those lights, make yourself comfortable, and of course, leave your disbelief at the door, as we hear all about The Cursed Gift My name is Marissa, and I'd like to share my family's story with you. Maybe it was just a haunting. Maybe it was just a long series of coincidences and unfortunate events. Or maybe... We're cursed. You have my permission to use my name but all other names have been changed to protect my family. I grew up in a small historical town in central Texas. Imagine Andy Griffith's Maybury with boots and cowboy hats. This town was founded in the 1700s because of a natural spring that became a tourist attraction. For those wealthy people who would come to our town for the Healing Springs properties... My mother's parents purchased land about eight miles east of our town in 1973. My parents, Alan and Elizabeth, married in 1975. A few years after my parents married, they purchased a ten-acre track of land about a mile away from my maternal grandparents, on the same county road, and shortly afterwards my paternal grandparents purchased the five-acre track of land right next to my parents'. My mother has told me that her and my father's early relationship was wonderful. They were young and happy, and not rich by any means, but they had what they needed. After three years of marriage, they welcomed my elder sister, Lee. And things were good for a time, until they moved to the property. My mother says she did notice changes. Smaller first in my father. Nothing too much to worry about. He was working at the local feed mill and they had a young child. One day when Lee was in her terrible twos, she'd gotten into something she wasn't supposed to, like any normal two year old, and my mum gently swatted her across the bottom. Nothing hard, just on the diaper. And my father struck my mother. Across the face with his open hand and shouted, You will never hit my child. My mum said she was absolutely stunned, dumbfounded. They'd been married five years and my father had never laid a hand on her before. I was born about a year later and three years later, my youngest sister Mia was born. At that time, My parents knew they needed a bigger home, so they purchased a large mobile home to be placed on the property. We had a few cows and pigs, chickens and rabbits and a big garden. I do remember glimpses of us all being a happy family there, with my mum and dad and sisters, and my dad being friendly and playful, hard-working. But that didn't last long. You see, when Mia was two, my father quit his job at the mill and he developed this paranoia that his supervisors were out to get him and he quit before they could fire him. He would sit at home, brooding, always angry and on edge. My mum had to take up the workload, working night shifts as a CNA at a nursing home and part-time at both a gas station and a diner, and then was coming home to care for three small girls, and my father. My mum said the day finally came when she knew she needed to get out or lose herself. She told my father she needed a break, and my father, with the financial backing of the joint bank account, cut my mother off and he filed for divorce the next week. Now, I know everyone will say, well, this is just a normal divorce. Couples break up all the time. There's nothing paranormal here. But wait. Within six months of the divorce, my father voluntarily foreclosed on our home, and my father, Lee, Mia and I moved into my grandparents' former home on the next property the previously mentioned five acres, next to the original ten my parents had bought. My grandparents had since had another house placed next to their home. At this time, Lee was nine, I was six and Mia was three. And this is when I learned about the ghosts on the property. My grandmother said she once saw a small, dark-haired girl running down the driveway in a red dress. Thinking it was Lee at the time, she chased after her, only to see that the girl did not have any legs below the hem of her dress, and she vanished as she crossed the fence. My aunt recalled years earlier, when she still lived with my grandparents in the old home, that my grandmother had just been diagnosed with cancer and my aunt was visited by a glowing woman in white who just touched her face and then faded away. About halfway back of the property where my grandparents, and now we, lived on, was an old family cemetery. The oldest of the stones were just flat rocks you could make out some etchings on the surface. In later years, we were told by a historian that these stones were documented as marking the graves of a Comanche Indian attack. And we did find several arrowheads and worked flint on that property. The majority of this cemetery was the final resting place of the slaughter family. No joking, that was their family name. They'd originally owned hundreds of acres in the mid to late 1800s, especially in this part of the county. There were at least 17 graves in this family cemetery, all belonging to members of the slaughter family. The last being buried in 1936... The back four acres of the property had been fenced off for my aunt's two ponies. Between the far back fence and our property and the old cemetery, there are underground streams that would sometimes open into muddy sinkholes. When Lee, Mia and I would go camping on the property, we would always camp on the far side of the sinkholes. I don't recall who told me. But I believed spirits couldn't cross running water. So we always felt safer back there with the water between us and that graveyard. But in this house, Lee and I would hear footsteps. Some nights, we would hear what sounded like tiny pebbles hitting the windows. Mia was too young to remember. My cousin once saw a smiling face on top of the refrigerator looking down at her. And my great-uncle was visiting once, and he fell asleep in one of the easy chairs. When he woke, he saw a man in chains and shackles walking across the room in front of him. Needless to say, he booked a hotel for the rest of his visit. In that first year, Lee and I shared a room with a bunk bed. Lee said she was awoken by mumbling, and she thought it was me making the noise. So she sat up to thump the top bunk to tell me to be quiet. And that's when she saw a small boy kneeling at the foot of her bed, his hands held in prayer. She froze. He stopped muttering and undid his hands and then vanished. At this time, I need to mention that right next to the graves of John Slaughter and his wife were the two graves of their children. The daughter, who passed away aged three, and the son, who passed away at four years old. I believe the child's spirits are a residual haunting and we just witnessed a glimpse of something that happened in their little lives. I do believe there are several spirits on that property, but it wasn't the house, it was the land. Like the children, a few residual, but some were intelligent. Some were kind and protective, like the woman in white who visited my aunt. Some were just playful though all scary in their own way, but at least one was sincerely dark and absolutely malevolent. It drained us. It made us sick and may have cursed our family to continue to suffer. When I was seven... I had the first nightmare. A recurring nightmare that has plagued me for over 30 years now. In my first dream, I saw a white male, early to mid-twenties, thin-built with messy, sandy blonde hair. And he just stood there, wearing a white turtleneck shirt. His eyes were fully open, but completely white and he cocked his head to the right as he was looking at me and opened his mouth slightly. His teeth were sharp and too long for his mouth, like a predator. I knew at once, in my nightmare, he was a werewolf and deadly. And they keep coming back. Over the next few years, my father became more and more distant and paranoid. He quit every job he had, claiming they were out to get him. And therefore, my grandfather became mine and my sister's primary caretaker. Even though our grandmother was only in her 60s, I have no memory of her being right in the head. She began developing dementia... And some days she was fine, and then she would have sudden angry outbursts. Our father became just another person that my grandfather was feeding and caring for, almost on the same level as us children. He became a hoarder, neglecting to clean or show any care for us girls. We always had problems with the lights they would flicker or the bulbs would burn out. In the 10 years we lived there, we went through at least five TV sets. One day, Mia and I were watching TV in the living room when a four foot long rat snake came around the front of the TV. Now, the TV was on a solid cabinet three feet off the floor. Of course, Mia and I, being small kids, screamed for our dad, who grabbed a garden tool and dispatched of the harmless snake. But we had no idea how such a large snake, A, got into the house, or B, got into the cabinet where the TV was. Skipping ahead a few years to 92, and it was February the 28th. I remember this because the next day was Leap Day. In Texas, our worst winter storms and freezing temperatures are always in February. We did not have central heating in our home. We only had a gas heater in the living room. And I had set up a cot in front of that heater, placing several blankets and quilts on the bed. And I was laying under the thick covering on my right side trying to go to sleep when suddenly I felt the entire weight of the blankets lift at least two feet off the bed. I froze. I couldn't move at all. My heart was pounding in my throat. The blankets laid back down on the bed and I thought it was all over. But suddenly all of the blankets rippled like a ruffled potato chip over and over on top of me. I was petrified, and then it stopped. The whole episode may have only lasted 20 seconds, but it felt like forever. When I finally found my voice again, I started screaming for my father. I told him what happened, but he didn't believe me, telling me I was only dreaming it. There was no way I dreamt it. I was awake and I knew what was happening. I also want to note that when this activity increased for me, I was an 11-year-old girl. And without sharing too much detail, I just come into womanhood. I've learned over the years that poltergeist and paranormal activity can increase during this time and target a girl around this age. About six months later, I'd finally started sleeping in my room again. By this time, Lee had moved out and went to live with our mum. After the blanket incident, i began begun sleeping with a flashlight under my pillow and made sure a lamp was always within arm's reach. I awoke once in the middle of the night and saw a light in the hallway. I just thought Mia had left her lamp on so I was going back to sleep. My eyes fluttered, and the light in the hall, that I believed was just Mia's light, was now a huge glow of bright white light. It must have been about seven feet high, and it was just about to cross my doorway. The way my bed was positioned was against the far wall, so I couldn't see down the hall. I could only see the doorway from the side. I grabbed my flashlight from under the pillow and flicked it on. Whatever was manifesting that light stopped just short of entering my room where I could have seen it. I reached over with my free hand and turned on my lamp. The hall was dark. No light from Mia's room. No light in the hall. Just darkness again. My final close encounter in that house came in the summer of 1993. I awoke early. It was a Saturday in July and dawn had just broke. I was on the bottom bunk of the same bunk I shared with Lee. I was lying facing the wall when I felt the weight of a man press against my side. Like he was checking on me. I could feel the breathing in his chest, and then it lifted. But there were no footsteps. My father was a large man, and his footsteps were heavy and loud, especially in that old house. Also, at that time, he was drinking coffee next door with my grandparents. Well, I moved into a tent in the yard for the rest of that summer, That was the last time I was touched or saw an entity. But I do believe whatever was there has left a mark on all of us. Maybe the ones I had immediate contact with were just playful or protective. But there was always something else watching us. You see, there was one or two other occasions I've not yet mentioned, which always left a fear deep in my gut. You see, on occasion, footsteps would chase me down the hall and it would lock the back door before I could reach it, and I would frantically unlock the door to get outside before the dark and the footsteps would reach me. Lee had the same experience. In my opinion, it was the reason my sisters and I were always sick and in the hospital. Pneumonia for me, kidney infections for Lee, digestive issues for Mia, grandma's early dementia, grandpa's heart troubles, my father's lung and heart problems. When we grew up, we discussed what happened in that house. The three of us sisters were all shocked to learn that at one point or another, all of us had attempted suicide as children in that house. Something bad was always in the shadows. I aged up. Lee was 19 and got married. Her and her husband, Frank, welcomed my nephew the summer before my senior year of high school. Mia and I had had enough of my father's verbal and emotional abuse and we both moved in with our mum. Poor grandma was lost in the world of dementia half the time. I'm sure by now you're wondering, well, it's just a haunting, little girl scared of footsteps and minor activity. But this is the curse and the werewolves came back. December twenty sixth, 1998, I was having a vivid nightmare. In the dream, I was on the property in the woods and I could hear my cousin humming happily to herself in the distance. Then I heard deep growling and I began to run away. My other cousin's voice spoke in my head and said, she doesn't know he's here. The growling was a werewolf stalking my cousin through the trees. I awoke to the phone ringing, and I heard my mum answer the phone, and then I heard her crying. It was my grandfather on the phone. My father's sister, the one who saw the ghostly woman in white, had been killed that morning in a car accident. She was the first. My uncle, now in his sixties, has never remarried. Aunt Diana was the first of too many to count now, who the dreams of these werewolves predicted the death of. It seems like any of us who lived on that land carry a mark to either die young or live a life of heartache, or both. Six months after Aunt Diana died, Lee, at only 20 years old, was diagnosed with with systemic lupus. The doctors said she may have five years. At 17, I joined the U.S. Army. I left for basic training five days after I turned 18. I lost my best friend to drowning at Fort Bragg. It was a week before she turned 20. My best friend and military police partner committed suicide a month after he left active duty. I talked to him for an hour or more the night before he shot himself in front of his wife. I wish I'd been given a warning. He was 26, with two young children, but he thought his family would be better off with $500,000 life insurance than with him. The guilt of having no warning and not being able to stop it still eats at me. My mother did remarry, but they only had four years. In my next dream, I was on my maternal grandparents' place, but there were odd people there. I knew there was something wrong with them. In the dream, I met with my maternal grandmother in her backyard, and she said... You know they're werewolves, right? This was mid-February. And after these dreams, the outcomes always happened within two weeks. March 1st, 2005 began as a wonderful day. My big sister Lee had spit in the face of fate. The doctors told her she should be dead by now. Told her she should never have another child. She told them to put that where the sun doesn't shine and she did have another child, my beautiful niece. She worked during the day at a dry cleaners and went to night school to get her peace officer's licence and was then hired as a sheriff's deputy. That day was her first official day on duty. Then Mama called. She was in the ER with our stepdad. Our stepdad died that night. Acute kidney failure. He was only 53. Mum was only 49. She's 68 today. She never dated again. Just to note, my father is now 72. He's also never remarried. The following November, the werewolves returned for a double tap. In this dream, I was in middle school, in the gymnasium, and there were a dozen of them, totally transformed, which is rare for these dreams. I was with a few other people, and we were trying to climb onto the rafters to escape the dozens of fully formed werewolves. My maternal grandmother passed away on November the 29th, and my step-grandmother passed away on December the 1st. December the 9th 2008, my second husband and I had just moved into our brand new home. I just started the first load of laundry in my brand new washing machine and my phone rang. It was my father and he was screaming my name over and over. I thought he was having a heart attack or a stroke, he had had several before. And then he said, Grandpa's house is on fire. Now at the time, I only lived about 20 minutes away from the old property. I called Lee and Mia whilst driving on the highway there. The property was about a mile down the county road from the highway, and I could see the glow of the fire before I even turned on the road. It turns out a man driving by the home saw the fire, and he found my grandfather badly burnt outside the house, Grandpa had managed to break through the back door and was able to tell the man my father's number after he contacted emergency services. My uncle, Ron, who never married and lived with my grandparents, perished in the fire. Grandpa was 87, a World War II veteran, and he tried to walk through that fire to get to his son on the other side of the house. Grandpa's bedroom was not burned. The same with the back door he went through. But the curse had claimed two more unnatural deaths. June 6, 2012. Over the last two years, Lee's health had begun to diminish rapidly. She first had a minor stroke that took most of the vision in one eye. Because of this, She had to stop working as the sheriff's deputy, but continued to work as a dispatcher until, one night, she had another stroke whilst driving home from work, wrecking her vehicle. For about four months, she was in and out of the hospital for weeks at a time. I got a call from my mum saying they were taking Lee by ambulance to the emergency room. She'd been to ER so much over the last year, it was almost routine. But I told my husband I should go, because I had a werewolf dream the previous week. When I got to the ER, I found out that they'd called the ambulance because her skin was turning purple, like a huge bruise, but all over her body. Her capillaries were bursting everywhere, Her body was shutting down. The last thing I heard her say as I was trying to keep the oxygen mask on her face was, I can't breathe. Within two hours, she was gone. 33 years old. We were shattered. Six months later, another dream. And we lost my maternal grandmother Three months later, I left my husband. This last story makes me believe I should just not remarry and I should stay single. Maybe it's better, maybe it's safer this way. I did marry again, but John was not kind. He was perfect in the beginning, the knight in shining armour, if you will. He promised me the moon but turned out to be a living nightmare. After eight years, I left him, with basically the clothes on my back. I lived in a cheap motel for three weeks before I was able to move into a little duplex. I had hope. I was starting over with my strength reclaimed, and I started dating my best friend, Shane. We were best friends first, "'absolute equals and partners, "'and we were fast in love and so happy. "'I was a month shy of 40, "'and it was one day after he turned 48 "'that we got a call from the doctor "'after a routine annual check-up, "'and he told us we were pregnant. "'When I told him, Shane cried, "'then smiled at me and said, Let's do this. His youngest daughter was 27. Mine was 21. They laughed at us, but they were so happy. I was still in a very nasty divorce battle with John Senior, and an even nastier custody battle for John Junior, who was only eight at the time. But Shane attended every appointment he could, and was tirelessly devoted to us and our baby girl in my belly. It was a high-risk pregnancy because of my age, and both John Jr. and my daughter, Mandy, were preterm. Paige was supposed to be born around Valentine's Day, but she was delivered by emergency C-section just two days after Christmas at only £3.5. She was, and still is, amazing and perfect, and looks and acts just like her daddy, who was of Apache Indian heritage. The werewolves didn't come, but the curse did. February 11th, 2023. Shane was killed in a car accident. I wish I'd been warned. His dad called that night and said, I killed Shane with my truck. I hung up on him because I couldn't believe what I was hearing. His dad called me back and said, You need to get over here now. I prayed all the way, just like the night of the fire, repeating over and over again the Lord's Prayer and the Hail Mary. But it was the same red and blue emergency lights and the emergency workers looking at me with that same look in their eyes as I passed them. I knew that look. I myself had given people that look when I was a military police officer, knowing that loved ones of the deceased would never see them again. It's human nature. It's a grief and empathy you can't hide. Shane had been driving with friends when the vehicle broke down a few miles from his dad's place. Shane called his dad to come and tow the car back to his house. It was late, on a very dark two-lane road with no shoulder to pull off on. They were in a small black car in the lane of traffic on a curve with no lights on. And Shane and his friend were stood behind the car waiting for his dad. His 76-year-old dad who was driving a Ford F-350 4x4 four-door pickup truck. By the time his dad saw them, it was too late. He tried to swerve, but it was too late. Shane died in his dad's arms. His friend didn't survive either. It's been eight months now. I understand now why none of my family have remarried or even dated again. Now when the werewolves come, I make sure to tell everyone I love, and I have done for years, because I can't get over the guilt if I lose my best friends and the dreams don't warn me first. Marissa, first and foremost, I'm exceptionally sorry for the amount of loss you've endured over the past few decades. It must have taken a lot of courage to send your experience into the show. So, sincerely, thank you for your submission. I'm absolutely fascinated that an area of land, maybe even sacred land, could empower someone with the gift of foresight and premonition. The thing that would anger me the most from what you've stated is the vagueness of the dreams that you have. So, for example, you dream of werewolves and then somebody dies. But there doesn't seem to be a huge connection between the werewolf dream and the person who dies. So you shouldn't really beat yourself up about not being able to save people's lives when you have these premonitions of impending death. Prophecy aside, the vision of being chased down the hall and something paranormally locking the door ahead of you is something that's going to stick with me for at least a few days. And if the vision itself is enough to terrify me, God knows what it was like to actually endure it. So once more, Marissa, thank you for submitting your experiences to the show. And I certainly hope this apparent curse lifts from you and your family. So that about wraps things up for episode 8 of season 13 of The Dark Paranormal. I'll speak to you again on Wednesday for a mini-sode, and again on Friday for our penultimate episode of season 13. And don't forget to receive early access to both finales, debuts, and, of course, the Patreon-only podcast Dark Bites. Head over to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Paranormal. But until next week and our penultimate episode, remember, when you're discussing the paranormal, always try and leave some of your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next time, right here on The Dark Paranormal.